Chapter 5 of The Making of a Bigot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Making of a Bigot by Rose McCauley. Chapter 5 Datchard and the Vicar. Datchard looked ill. That was the predominant impression Eddie got of him. An untidy, pale, sad-eyed person of thirty-five, with a bad temper and an extraordinarily ardent fire of energy, at once determined and rather hopeless. The evils of the world loomed, it seemed, even larger in his eyes than their possible remedies. But both loomed large. He was a pessimist and a reformer, an untiring fighter against overwhelming odds. He was allied both by birth and marriage. The marriage had been a bygone mistake of the emotions, for which he was dearly paying, with a class which, without intermission, and by the mere fact of its existence, incurred his vindictive wrath. See further, month by month. He had tried and failed to get into Parliament. He had now given up hopes of that field of energy, and was devoting himself to philanthropic social schemes and literary work. He was not an attractive person, exactly. He lacked the light touch and the ordinary human amenities. But there was a drawing power in the impetuous ardor of his convictions and purposes, in his acute and brilliant intelligence, in his immense chaotic generosity, and, to some natures, in his unhappiness and his ill health and his smile, which came seldom, would have softened any heart. Perhaps he did not smile at Hillier on Monday evening. Anyhow, Hillier's heart remained hard towards him, and his towards Hillier. He was one of the generation who left the universities fifteen years ago. They are often pronounced and thoughtful agnostics, who have thoroughly gone into the subject of Christianity, as taught by the churches, and decided against it. They have not the modern way of rejection, which is to let it alone as an irrelevant thing, a thing known and perhaps cared too little about to pronounce upon, or the modern way of acceptance, which is to embark upon it as an inspiring and desirable adventure. They of that old generation think that religion should be squared with science, and, if it can't be, rejected finally. Anyhow, Datchard thought so. He had rejected it finally, as a Cambridge undergraduate, and had not changed his mind since. He believed freedom of thought to be of immense importance, and a dogmatic person himself was anxious to free the world from the fetters of dogma. Hillier, also a dogmatic person, there are so many, preached a sermon the Sunday after he had met Datchard, about those who would find themselves fools at the judgment day. Further, Hillier agreed with James Peters that the relations of Datchard and Mrs. Lemoyne were unfitting, considering that everyone knew that Datchard didn't get on with his wife, nor Mrs. Lemoyne live with her husband. People in either of those unfortunate positions cannot be too careful of appearances. Meanwhile, Mrs. Lemoyne's fiddling held the club spellbound, she played English folk melodies and Hungarian dances, and the boys' feet shuffled in tune. Londoners are musical people on the whole. 
No one can say that, though they like bad music, they don't like good music too. They are Catholic in taste. Eddie Oliver, who liked anything he heard, from a barrel organ to a Beethoven symphony, was a typical specimen. His foot, too, tapped in tune. His blood danced in him, to the lilt of laughter and passion and gay living, that the quick bow tore from the strings. He knew enough, technically, about music to know that this was wonderful playing, and he remembered what he had heard before, that this brilliant, perverse, childlike-looking person, with her great brooding eyes and half-sullen brows, and the fiddle tucked away under her round chin, was a genius. He believed he had heard that she had some Hungarian blood in her besides the Irish strain. Certainly the passion and the fire in her that was setting everyone's blood stirring so could hardly be merely English. At the end of a wild dance tune, and during riotous applause, Eddie turned to Datchard, who stood close to him, and laughed. My word, was all he said. Datchard smiled a little at him, and Eddie liked him more than ever. They like it, don't they, said Datchard. Look how they like it. They like this, and then we go and give them husks, vulgarities from the comic operas. Oh, but they like those too, said Eddie. Datchard said impatiently, they'd stop liking them if they could always get anything decent. But surely, said Eddie, the more things they like, the better. Datchard, looking round at him to see if he meant it, said, Good heavens, and was frowningly silent. An intolerant man, and ill-tempered at that, Eddie decided, but liked him very much all the same. Mrs. Lemoyne was playing again, quite differently. All the passion and the wildness were gone now. She was playing a sixteenth-century tune, curiously naive and tender and engaging and objective like a child's singing or Jane Don's drawings. The detachment of it, the utter self-obliteration, pleased Eddie even more than the passion of the dance. Here was genius at its highest. It seemed to him very wonderful that she should be giving of her best so lavishly to a roomful of ignorant borough lads. Very wonderful, and at the same time very characteristic of her wayward, chaotic, self-pleasing generosity that he fancied was neither based on any principle nor restrained by any considerations of prudence. She would always, he imagined, give just what she felt inclined, and when she felt inclined, whatever the gift she dealt in. Anyhow, she had become immensely popular in the club room. The admiration roused by her music was increased by the queer charm she carried with her. She stood about among the boys for a little, talking. She told them about the tunes, what they were and whence they came. She whistled a bar here and there, and they took it up from her. She had asked which they liked and why. In my settlement up by the Lee, said Datcherd to Eddie, she's got some of the tunes out into the streets already. You hear them being whistled as the men go to work. Eddie looked at Hillier to see if he hadn't been softened by this wonderful evening. Hillier, of course, had liked the music, anyone would, but his moral sense had a fine power of holding itself severely aloof from conversion by any but moral suasions. He was genially chatting with the boys, as usual, 
Hillier was delightful with boys and girls, and immensely popular. But Eddie suspected him unchanged in his attitude towards the visitors. Eddie, for music like that, would have loved a Mrs. Pendennis, had she been capable of producing it, let alone anyone so likable as Eileen Lemoyne. Hillier, less susceptible to influence, still sat in judgment. Flushed and bright-eyed, Eddie made his way to Mrs. Lemoyne. "'I say, thanks most awfully,' he said. "'I knew it was going to be wonderful, but I didn't know how wonderful. I shall come to all your concerts now.' Hillier overheard that, and his brows rose a little. He didn't see how Eddie was going to make the time to attend all Mrs. Lemoyne's concerts. It would mean missing club nights and whole afternoons. In his opinion, Eddie, for a parish worker, went too much out of the parish already. Mrs. Lemoyne said, with her usual lack of circumlocution, I'll come again next Monday, shall I? I would like to get the music thoroughly into their heads. They're keen enough to make it worthwhile. Eddie said promptly, Oh, will you really? How splendid! Hillier, coming up to them, said courteously, This has been extremely good of you, Mrs. Lemoyne. We have all had a great treat. But you really mustn't waste more of your valuable time on our uncultivated ears. We are not worth it, I'm afraid. Eileen looked at him with a glint of amusement in the gloomy blue shadowiness of her eyes. I won't come, she said, unless you want me to, of course. Hillier protested. It's delightful for us, naturally, far more than we deserve. It was your time I was thinking of. That will be all right. I'll come then for half an hour next Monday. She turned to Eddie. Will you come to lunch with us, Miss Hogan and me, you know, next Sunday? Arnold Dennison's coming, and Carl Levinsky, the violinist, and two or three other people. Three, Campton Hill Road, at one-thirty. Thanks, I should like to. Datchard came up from the back of the room, where he had been talking to Traherne, who had come in lately. They said goodbye, and the club took to billiards. Is Mr. Datchard coming, too, next Monday? Hillier inquired gloomily of Eddie. Oh, I expect so. I suppose it's less of a bore for Mrs. Lemoyne not to have to come all that way alone. Besides, he's awfully interested in it all. A first-class man, said Traherne, who was an enthusiast, and had found in Datchard another socialist, though not a church one. Eddie and the curates walked back together later in the evening. Eddie felt vaguely jarred by Hillier tonight, probably because Hillier was, in his mind, opposing something, and that was the one thing that annoyed Eddie. Hillier was, he felt, opposing these delightful people who had provided the club with such a glorious evening, and were going to do so again next Monday. These brilliant people, who spilt their genius so lavishly before the poor and ignorant. These charming, friendly people, who had asked Eddie to lunch next Sunday. What Hillier said was, "'Shall you get Wilkes to take your class again on Sunday afternoon, Oliver?' Yes, I suppose so. He doesn't mind, does he? I believe he really takes it a lot better than I do. Hillier believed so, too, and made no comment. Traherne laughed. Wilkes? Oh, he means well, no doubt. But I wouldn't turn up on Sunday afternoon if I was going to be taught by Wilkes. 
"'What an ass you are, Oliver, going to lunch parties on Sundays.' With Treherne work came first, and everything else, especially anything social, an immense number of lengths behind. With Eddie a number of things ran neck to neck all the time. He wouldn't, Treherne thought, a trifle contemptuously, ever accomplish much in any sphere of life at that rate. He said to the vicar that night, Oliver's being caught in the toils of society, I fear. For such a keen person, he's oddly slack about sticking to his job when anything else turns up. But Hillier said, at a separate time, Oliver's being dragged into a frightfully unwholesome set, vicar. I hate those people. That man Datchard is an aggressive unbeliever, you know. He does more harm, I believe, than anyone quite realizes. And one hears things said, you know, about him and Mrs. Lemoyne. Oh, no harm, I dare say, but one has to think of the effect on the weaker brethren. And Oliver's bringing them into the parish, and I wouldn't care to answer for the effects. It made me a little sick. I don't mind saying, to you, to see Datchard talking to the lads tonight. A word dropped here, a sneer there, and the seed is sown from which untold evil may spring. Of course, Mrs. Lemoyne is a wonderful player, but that makes her influence all the more dangerous to my mind. The lads were fascinated this evening. One saw them hanging on her words. I don't suppose, said the vicar, that she, or Datchard either, would say anything to hurt them. Hillier caught him up sharply. You approve, then? You won't discourage Oliver's intimacy with them, or his bringing them into the parish? Most certainly I shall, if it gets beyond a certain point. There's a mean in all things. But it's their effect on Oliver, rather than on the parish, that I should be afraid of. He's got to realize that a man can't profitably have too many irons in the fire at once. If he's going perpetually to run about London, seeing friends, he'll do no good as a worker. Also, it's not good for his soul to be continually with people who are unsympathetic with the church. He's not strong enough or grown up enough to stand it. But Eddie had a delightful lunch on Sunday, and Wilkes took his class. Other Sundays followed, and other weekdays, and more delightful lunches, and many concerts and theaters, and expeditions into the country, and rambles about the town, and musical evenings in St. Gregory's Parish, and, in general, a jolly life. Eddie loved the whole of life, including his work in St. Gregory's, which he was quite as much interested in as if it had been his exclusive occupation. Ingenuously, he would try to draw his friends into pleasures which they were by temperament and training little fitted to enjoy. For instance, he said to Datchard and Mrs. Lemoyne one day, We've got a mission on now in the parish. There's an eight o'clock service on Monday night, so there'll be no club. I wish you'd come to the service instead. It's really good, the mission. Father Dempsey of St. Austin's is taking it. Have you ever heard him? Datchard, in his grave, melancholy way, shook his head. Eileen smiled at Eddie and patted his arm in the motherly manner she had for him. Now, what do you think? No, we never have. Would we understand him if we did? I expect not, do you know? Tell us when the mission, is that what you call it? But I thought they were for blacks and Jews. 
is over and I'll come again and play to the clubs. Till then, oughtn't you to be going to services every night? And I wonder, ought you to be dining and theatering with us on Thursday? Oh, I can fit it in easily, said Eddie, cheerfully. But seriously, I do wish you'd come one night. You'd like Father Dempsey. He's an extraordinarily alive and stimulating person. Hillier thinks him flippant, but that's rubbish. He's the best man in the church. All the same, they didn't come. How difficult it is to make people do what they are not used to. How good it would be for them if they would. If Hillier would but sometimes spend an evening at Datchard's settlement. If James Peters would but come, at Eddie's request, to shop at the poetry bookshop. If Datchard would but sit under Father Dempsey, the best man in the church. It sometimes seemed to Eddie that it was he alone, in a strange, uneclectic world, who did all these things with impartial assiduity and fervor. And he found, which was sad and bewildering, that those with less impartiality of taste got annoyed with him. The vicar thought, not unnaturally, that during the mission he ought to have given up other engagements and devoted himself exclusively to the parish, getting them to come. All the curates thought so too. Meanwhile, Arnold Dennison thought that he ought to have stayed to the end of the debate on Impressionism in poetry at the Wednesday club that met in Billy Raymond's rooms, instead of going away in the middle to be in time for the late service at St. Gregory's. Arnold thought so particularly because he hadn't yet spoken himself, and it would obviously have been more becoming in Eddie to wait and hear him. Eddie grew to have an uncomfortable feeling of being a little wrong with everyone. He felt aggrieved under it. At last, a fortnight before Christmas, the vicar spoke to him. It was on a Sunday evening. Eddie had had supper with Cecil Lemoyne, and it was Cecil's turn to have the Sunday Games Club, a childish institution that flourished just then among them, meet at his house. Eddie returned to St. Gregory's late. The vicar said at bedtime, I want to speak to you, Oliver, if you can spare a minute or two, and they went into his study. Eddie felt rather like a schoolboy awaiting a jawing. He watched the vicar's square, sensible, kind face through a cloud of smoke and saw his point of view precisely. He wanted certain work done. He didn't think the work was so well done if a hundred other things were done also. He believed in certain things. He didn't think belief in those things could be quite thorough if those who held it had constant and unnecessary traffic with those who quite definitely didn't. Well, it was, of course, a point of view. Eddie realized that. The vicar said, I don't want to be interfering, Oliver, but frankly, are you as keen on this job as you were two months ago? Yes, rather, said Eddie. Keener, I think. One gets into it, you see. The vicar nodded, patient and a little cynical. Quite. Well, it's a full man's job, you know. One can't take it easy. One's got to put every bit of oneself into it, and even so there isn't near enough of most of us to get up sides with it. Oh, I don't mean don't take on times, or don't have outside interests and plenty of friends. Of course I don't. But one's got not to fritter and squander one's energies, and one's got to have one's whole heart in the work. 
or it doesn't get done as it should. It's a job for the keen, for the enthusiasts, for the single-minded. Do you think, Oliver, that it's quite the job for you? Yes, said Eddie, readily, though crestfallen. I'm keen. I'm an enthusiast. I'm... He couldn't say single-minded, so he broke off. Really, he added, I'm awfully sorry if I've scamped the work lately and been out of the parish too much. I've tried not to, honestly. I mean, I've tried to fit it all in and not scamp things. Fit it all in? The vicar took him up. Precisely. There you are. Why do you try to fit in so much more than you've properly room for? Life's limited, you see. One's got to select one thing or another. Oh, Eddie murmured, what an awful thought. I want to select lots and lots of things. It's greedy, said the vicar. What's more, it's silly. You'll end by getting nothing. And now there's another thing. Of course, you choose your own friends. It's no business of mine. But you bring them a good deal into the parish, and that's my business, of course. Now, I don't want to say anything against friends of yours, still less to repeat the comments of ignorant and prejudiced people, but I expect you know the sorts of things such people would say about Mr. Datchard and Mrs. Lemoyne. After all, they're both married to someone else. You'll admit that they are very reckless of public opinion, and that that's a pity. He spoke cautiously, saying less than he felt, in order not to be annoying. But Eddie flushed, and for the first time looked cross. Surely if people are low-minded enough, he began. That, said the vicar, is part of one's work, to consider low minds. Besides, my dear Oliver, I don't want to be censorious, but why doesn't Mrs. Lemoyne live with her husband? And why isn't Datchard ever to be seen with his wife? And why are those two perpetually together? Eddie grew hotter. His hand shook a little as he took out his pipe. The Lemoynes live apart because they prefer it. Why not? Datchard, I presume, doesn't go about with his wife because they are hopelessly unsuited to each other in every way and bore each other horribly. I've seen Lady Dorothy Datchard. The thought of her and Datchard as companions is absurd. She disapproves of all he is and does. She's a worldly, selfish woman. She goes her way and he his. Surely it's best. As for Datchard and Mrs. Lemoyne, they aren't perpetually together. They come down here together because they're both interested. But they're in quite different sets, really. His friends are mostly social workers and politicians and writers of leading articles and contributors to the quarterlies and the political press. What are called able men, you know. His whole family, of course, are all that sort. Her friends are artists and actors and musicians and poets and novelists and journalists, and casual, irresponsible people who play round and have a good time and do clever work. I mean, her set and his haven't very much to do with one another, really. Eddie spoke rather eagerly, as if he was anxious to impress this on the vicar and himself. The vicar heard him out patiently, then said, I never said anything about sets. It's him and her I'm talking about. You won't deny they're great friends. Well, no man and woman are great friends in the eyes of poor people. They're something quite different. And that's not wholesome. It starts talk, and your being hand in glove with them 
does no good to your influence in the parish. For one thing, Datchard's known to be an atheist. These constant Sunday outings of yours, you're always missing church, you see, and that's a poor example. I've been spoken to about it more than once by the parents of your class boys. They think it's strange that you should be close friends with people like that. Eddie started up. People like that? People like Hugh Datchard and Eileen Lemoyne? Good heavens, I'm not fit to black their boots, and nor are the idiots who talk about them like that. Vulgar-mouthed lunatics. This was unlike Eddie. He never called people vulgar, nor despised them. That was partly why he made a good church worker. The vicar looked at him over his pipe, a little irritated in his turn. He had not reckoned on the boy being so hot about these friends of his. "'It's a clear choice,' said the vicar, rather sharply. "'Either you give up seeing so much of these people, and certainly give up bringing them into the parish, or, I'm very sorry because I don't want to lose you, you must give up St. Gregory's.' Eddie stood looking on the floor, angry, unhappy, uncertain. "'It's no choice at all,' he said at last. "'You know I can't give them up. Why can't I have them and St. Gregory's too? What's the inconsistency? I don't understand.' The vicar looked at him impatiently. His faculty of sympathy, usually so kind, humorous, and shrewd, had run up against one of those limiting walls that very few people— who are supremely in earnest over one thing, are quite without. He occasionally, really not often, said a stupid thing. He did so now. You don't understand? Surely it's extremely simple. You can't serve God and mammon. That's the long and the short of it. You've got to choose which. That, of course, was final. Eddie said, Naturally, if it's like that, I'll leave St. Gregory's at once. That is, directly it's convenient for you that I should, he added, considerate by instinct, though angry. The vicar turned to face him. He was bitterly disappointed. You mean that, Oliver? You won't give it another trial on the lines I advise? Mind, I don't mean I want you to have no friends, no outside interests. Look at Treherne now. He's full of them. I only want, for your own sake and our people's, that your heart should be in your job. I had better go, said Eddie, knowing it for certain. He added, please don't think I'm going off in a stupid huff or anything. It's not that. Of course, you've every right to speak to me as you did. But it's made my position quite clear to me. I see this isn't really my job at all. I must find another. The vicar said, holding out his hand, I'm very sorry, Oliver. I don't want to lose you. Think it over for a week, will you? and tell me then what you have decided. Don't be hasty over it. Remember, we've all grown fond of you here. You'll be throwing away a good deal of valuable opportunity if you leave us. I think you may be missing the best in life. But I mustn't take back what I said. It is a definite choice between two ways of life. They won't mix. They will, they will, said Eddie to himself, and went to bed. If the vicar thought they wouldn't, the vicar's way of life could not be his. He had no need to think it over for a week. He was going home for Christmas, and he would not come back after that. This job was not for him, and he could not, he knew now, be a clergyman. They drew lines. They objected to people and things. They failed to accept. 
The vicar, when he had mentioned Datchard, had looked as Datchard had looked when Eddie had mentioned Father Dempsey and the mission. Eddie was getting to know that critical, disapproving look too well. Everywhere it met him. He hated it. It seemed to him even stranger in clergymen than in others, because clergymen are Christians, and, to Eddie's view, there were no negations in that vivid and intensely positive creed. Its commands were always, surely, to go and do, not to abstain and reject, and look, too, at the sort of people who were of old accepted in that generous, all-embracing circle. End of chapter 5